Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is Shea Serrano. He's a writer. He's covered basketball and culture for ESPN, XXL, Grantland, The Ringer, and more. He took a kind of unusual path to making a career out of writing. He was born and raised in Texas, and he was originally a teacher who'd write in his spare time. It wasn't until he was in his 30s that he became a full-time journalist. He wrote his first book around then, too. The Rap Yearbook is a New York Times bestseller and a critical favorite. When he and I talked in 2017, he just followed that up with Basketball and Other Things. Basketball and Other Things is kind of like a late-night party discussion with friends, but, you know, written out. There are cool illustrations, too. Serrano talks about stuff like great basketball villains, which NBA players get remembered for the wrong reasons. And he asks the important questions, like, who's in the disrespectful dunk Hall of Fame? He's since followed up Basketball and Other Things with Movies and Other Things, a similar book with movie rankings, hot takes, and icebreakers. And just this past month, he's expanded his illustrated series with another entry, Hip Hop and Other Things. Anyway, let's get into it. My conversation with Shea Serrano. Shea Serrano, welcome to Bullseye. It's it's fun to have you on the show. Oh, man, I appreciate y'all having me. So why basketball? What's so great about basketball? What's so great about basketball? <laughs> Basketball's the best sport on the planet, Jesse. How dare you? I'm, How dare you ask me that question? I'm a big baseball fan, so I mean I'm a base I'm a basketball fan too, but I, I love baseball, so that's why I'm allowed to challenge you with that question. Oh my goodness. You know what? I, um one time this guy asked me if I wanted to play baseball. Like a kid in my neighborhood. He's like, yo, you wanna go play a baseball game with us? I said, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Let's go try that. And then I was just standing there for like three hours, and I was like, when does the game start? And he said, yo, good good game today. <laughs> like I was playing an outfield, turned out, and that was the end of the game for me. So let's talk a little bit about how you started uh, your career as a writer. You didn't go to college to be a writer, and and from what I gather, you basically didn't aspire to be a writer. Is that true? Those are both correct statements, sir. So how did you end up becoming a writer? Because becoming a professional writer is, spoiler alert, very difficult. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. I uh, So what ended up happening was I was a teacher at the time. I was a teacher. My wife was a teacher. And the plan was we were, we were getting married. We were going to have kids. We were going to live the rest of our lives as teachers for 35 years or whatever. And that was going to be... The life we built together. And then uh, she got pregnant with the twins. And about four months into the pregnancy, we had a, this is a longer story than needs to be told here. But basically, the short version is she had a bunch of complications with the pregnancy. She ended up having to go on bed rest for the remainder of the pregnancy, which ended up being about four months. So she's on bed rest for those four months. And we were trying to survive on just a teacher salary, which when I was in Houston that first year, I think it was making like 43 four thousand dollars a year or something which is not nearly nearly enough you know every two weeks you get a check for twelve hundred dollars or something and uh so i we needed extra money 
And I was trying to figure it out, and I was applying to places like Target or, or Papado, and I went on an interview or two, and both times the person interviewing me told me that they weren't going to hire me because I already had a full-time job. So I needed something I could do in my own time. So I was literally at home Googling work-from-home jobs, and Ryder was one of them. And I was like, bang, I'll just be a writer then, I guess. And uh, Houston is a big city. There are a bunch of little tiny newspapers that maybe only people in Houston know about that just cover certain neighborhoods. So I started grabbing all of those, contacting those people, telling them, you know, I'm a new writer in town and pitching them ideas. And, you know, it it took maybe a couple of months for, for me to get my feet under me and figure out what I was doing. But once I did, I was able to make a little bit of money doing this, you know, $20 here, $50 there, whatever. And I was able to just build it up. And over that period of time, my wife had the 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 boys, and she was taking care of them. And then she was also, like, supporting me in this new writing career that I was trying to do all of a sudden. And she was probably my first actual editor because she's much more intelligent than I am. She actually had experience in writing. So she would like edit the pieces or show me what I was doing wrong. And after about a year, we we figured out we were able to survive on just the teaching plus writing. So we made the decision that she was going to stay home with the with the kids. And then she started a photography career, which she eventually was able to chase down. And I was teaching and, and, and writing. And that was, you know, eight, nine years ago. And it's just grown ever, ever since then. This is a slow. Pro- I mean, it's easy for me to tell you that story now, but again, this was over the course of several years. When when I was in my mid twenties, I got offered a chance to write a story for the alternative newspaper in Santa Cruz, California, where I'd gone to college. And I wrote the thing, and I had never written anything besides term papers or whatever. They just published it. And I, and I realized I like where this is going already. I like where this is going already. And I realized that like the alternative newspaper in Santa Cruz is basically just like well, this one guy. It is an odd situation where I guess if you just go up to that guy and pitch him something, and you seem like you've got a head on your shoulders, he might just be like, "Yeah, okay." And by the time you turn it in. He doesn't have any choice to fill the space but to run it. <laughs> That's 100% exactly what happened. The fir- the very first thing I wrote was for a, n- a neighborhood newspaper called the Near Northwest Banner. Not even the Northwest Banner, the Near Northwest Banner. And it was this there was this uh, older woman and her husband and they were literally printing it up in their garage with like some machine that you turn and then they would hand them out in <laughs> the pr- in the neighborhood. Are you talking about a printing press? A printing yeah. press. She had her own printing press in the garage. Her name was Frances. I'll never forget. She was the nicest person I ever met in my life. One day, Gut- one and... day Gutenberg bursts into the living room and tells his wife, <laughs> I've invented a machine, a machine that you turn. But she she was really nice, and she let me write about the Astros, and then I wrote a thing about the Texans. And, yeah, I was able to go from there. But yeah, And what's funny is you mentioned the, them going – Pizza place, pizza place. That's how I found that particular newspaper. It was in a kiosk in a neighborhood pizza parlor that I just happened to grab. And there you go. One of the amazing skills that you have as a writer is you seem to have, and it's in evidence in this basketball book, an indefatigable ability to like generate fantastical scenarios 
and premises for genuinely interesting uh, semi-listy things. <laughs> That's a very specific skill to have, I think. It is. I mean, but like one of the interesting things I think about the way that you do it is that you come up with something that is genuinely personal and specific in a format that in the rest of the internet is driven by the most banal baloney in the world, right? Like you right. write the interesting version of the boring thing that is internet listicles, which is usually just like, <laughs> here's seven things you recognize, right? Right, right, right. Meanwhile, meanwhile you're writing... Uh, uh, who is basketball's? Who are the big greatest basketball villains of all time? It, that involves a complicated scenario where you're defining the exact nature of basketball villainy. Right. So, uh, do you just like sit down and and write a, down a list of a hundred things and cross seventy five of them out, or what? That's that's basically how it goes. Yes, <laughs> you, you start out with some general ideas, and then you just drill it down to get. As specific as possible. Like, so the thing you're talking about here is one of the chapters in the basketball book. And I had, a, originally that started out with, was just a, a phrase. All I, I wrote, I had in my notes, Tower of Villains. And I had no idea exactly what that was going to be until I sat down to start writing on it. And I knew I didn't want it to only be a list of like the the meanest basketball villains or whatever, because that's been done already. So let's approach it from from a different angle. And yes, let's spend a lot of time talking about what it is that makes a basketball villain a basketball villain and what it is that makes him uh, or her a good villain or a bad villain. That When you get lost in those sorts of creases or folds, that to me is is always a little more fun than just a straight line conversation. So generally that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to take a, one broad idea and then get very, very specific with it and then hopefully... In that specificity, we have some, you know, general thoughts or ideas that everybody can grab onto. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Let's talk about the specifics of that list, for example. What constitutes a great basketball villain? Oh, man. Well, there were a, a bunch of bullet points I laid out in there. But, for example, one of the things when you're looking at who a top-tier villain is, is they have to sort of enjoy that role. So you take somebody like a like a Reggie Miller, who seems to sort of covet being called a villain and, and doing villainous things in other arenas. He always seemed to perform better uh, in like a, in a New York or a Chicago or something like that against those teams. Um, do we just want to try to identify those traits? So that would be one of them. Another one is he has to be a, a player who plays a fair amount. Like you can't just be a Dante Jones on the bench. You've got to be out of the court. You've got to be a Steph or a LeBron or these somebody in the action. Even more still to come with Shea Serrano. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. My guest is writer Shea Serrano. He's covered sports and pop culture for The Ringer, Grantland, and more. He's also the author of the books Basketball and Other Things, Movies and Other Things, and the new hip-hop and other things. Each one is an illustrated collection of questions, rankings, and thoughts designed to provoke deep discussion and perhaps some silly arguments. When we talked in 2017, Shea had just released Basketball and Other Things. Let's get back into our conversation. 
Let's talk about fictional basketball players. This is another of the lists in your book. Uh, yes. The greatest fictional basketball players of all time ranked. This is like almost a parody of a Grantland or the Ringer article. Yeah. The, uh, so this one is not set up in that specific fashion. It, it's a, it, If we're doing an, an NBA draft and we're drafting, you can only pick players from basketball team, from TV shows or, or movies, then... Let's figure out what order all of those guys um, or girls would go in. How but many? Yes, I love this. I love this conversation. How many of these TV mo- TV shows and movies had you seen, and how many did you have to see in order to write this piece? I had s- probably seen about seventy percent of them, and then I had to watch the other thirty percent. It was a long time. That was that's a three part chapter. It's about nine thousand words total. <laughs> It's like it's 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 a lot. Yeah, I spent several weeks working on on that section. You've thrown so much of your life down that hole. Uh, yes, it was it was way too much time. That's a big part of the reason I was late. I turned the book in several months late because it was always way more research than I was anticipating. But yeah, once you get started in that, like you you want to do a good job. You don't want to leave stuff out. You want to make sure you have considered all of the parts that need to be considered. It's a it's a lot, man. How long did you work as a teacher while you were writing? Nine years I was a teacher. And nine years I was writing, maybe probably eight years I was writing of those nine years teaching. So how long ago did you quit teaching? 2015, July of 2015. I'll never forget it. I mean, was that like when you became a best-selling author? Or <laughs> like That's not very long ago, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I I get the sense when I talk to people that they think I've been a full-time writer for very long when that isn't the case at all. I left teaching in July of 2015, and I was working at Grantland at the time. And that was so July from 2015 is when I started full-time writing. But then in October, ESPN shut down Grantland, and that was the end of my like full-time writing career was four months until I started again at The Ringer in July of 2015. 16. But yeah, the the rap yearbook came out in October of 2015, so I quit right before the the rap yearbook came out. You taught some of the toughest kinds of uh students to teach. I mean, you taught like English language learners in middle school. Mm-hmm. Like there's no more challenging teaching job. I mean, just hanging out with middle schoolers that much is quite a challenge. Um Yes. I mean, we all went to middle school. It's hard. It's hard to be 12. Um, But those are like, the that's like you put yourself in the toughest positions you possibly could be in. Right. I I wasn't thinking about it that way. And I don't want to make it seem like I was in the middle of this combat zone. Like, I was te- I was teaching the, the the English language learners and the special ed and the behavior groups, uh, but I also had regular ed or or a couple of pre-AP classes over those nine years. And it was always a situation where those those kids, as long as they feel like you want to be in the classroom with them, then y- your life ain't that hard. If they know you're, you you care, then they start to care too. And it does, it does take a little while in the beginning. My first year, I just got skewered. It was a total disaster. I was horrible at teaching, but I, I could feel myself every morning wanting to like figure it out. I'm going to eventually figure this out if I stick with it, is how I felt. 
And then once I started to get good at it, and I was like, oh, man, I had some kids who did well this year or several years into it. I'm like, oh, I'm getting invitations from kids who are graduating high school or who got into a college. Like that was a big, uh, a big thing for me. So, yeah, it wasn't like a, a just this terrible situation, like a dangerous minds gunshots going off around the classroom. We were just in a we were in South Houston. It was a predominantly Hispanic area. The school was like 98, 99. I mean, 98, 97 percent Hispanic. It was a Title I school. Most of the kids were on free lunch. Like, But that was the neighborhood, the Houston version of where I grew up in San Antonio. We, I was in the, that same middle school and high school, and it all felt very natural when I was in there. And like, it felt like that's where I was supposed to be. A lot of the teachers that I remember most vividly from the public urban public high school that I went to were the ones who just seemed like they didn't consider it a burden that I was in their class. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. You you want a kid, you make a kid feel like he's wanted or she's wanted. You give a kid a nickname. If you give a kid a nickname, that kid will run through a wall for you. That's all it is because they know you care at least a little bit about them. You, I started calling a kid laser or whatever, <laughs> turbo, <laughs> turbo. And I, I was taking names from like old movies I saw. Oh, these two kids are always hanging out together. You guys are turbo and ozone. And like, why are you calling us turbo and ozone? I tried to explain this from an old breakdancing movie. It didn't make any sense to them. <laughs> they don't know what breakdancing is. But they knew their names were turbo and ozone. And then after that, I never had any issues with turbo and ozone ever again. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, this is like <laughs> these little things work. <laughs> were all the nicknames from breaking or were there like some crush? <laughs> were there some crush groove nicknames at all? No, I had them. I had them from all over, man. You would just take a name and switch it up a little bit, and but I, I very, in my head, I can see still see Turbo and Ozone. I also had a Harvard and Stanford. These two girls, one year, who were always sitting together at their own little table, and I was like trying to encourage them to to try a little harder. I started calling them that, them that, and then like at the end of the year, we had our graduation ceremony, and Harvard's dad came up to me, and was like almost in tears. And you were straight up like, hey, nobody has ever given my kid. Like, you started calling her Harvard, and then all of a sudden she started talking about maybe she's going to go to college. And it was like, whoa, you don't realize it until maybe the end of it. But all that little stuff adds up. Like, the, that's why you remember the teachers you remember. I wanted to be that guy in the in the community. And I screwed up a bunch of stuff. I don't want to make it seem like I was just this phenomenal teacher who never messed anything up. I messed a lot of situations up. I was just trying to do more good than harm. Are there parts of your life as a teacher that you miss? Yes, absolutely. You Teaching was, was I think, the most meaningful job to me that I, that I ever had. And it, it ended up being a, way more of like an emotional commitment than I had anticipated going into it. I knew Wait, I always hold, wanted to be a hold teacher on when I was growing up. Hold on, Chet. You're telling okay. me that teaching was more emotionally meaningful than ranking the greatest fictional basketball players of all time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, Jesse. Just keep on poking me in my eye about it. Yes, that is a, that is true. It was really, it was like a touching experience to be in the classroom with those kids for as long as I was. You you know, you don't, uh, you don't, end, I, maybe because I went into it, I was really young. I was 24, 25 when I started, maybe 26. And uh, and you don't anticipate the way that you connect with, with these kids or the way that 
what happens to them sort of affects you. So, yeah, I think about it all the time, especially when you get around the big things. Like anytime August rolls around, that's always a, a tough time for me because I know the teachers are going through the, you know, getting ready for the new year. And, or anytime you get around from like March to March through April, which is the big testing period, like I can feel myself leaning toward that world at, at in those moments. I think about it a lot, man. We got to take a quick break. When we come back, Shea Serrano and I will share our thoughts on rapper J. Cole. Uh, look, my apologies to fans of J. Cole. He's good. Look, J. Cole is good. Of course he is. I'm, take it with a grain of salt. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, it's Kevin from Max Fun HQ. This year for Giving Tuesday, we're inviting you to a super fun tarot event. It's got some of your favorite Max Fun hosts, and it's for a great cause. Join Depression Mode's John Moe, Carrie Poppy of Ono, Ross and Carrie, Stuart Wellington from The Flop House, Tom Lum from Let's Learn Everything, and Ellen Weatherford of Just the Zoo of Us. Your suggested $10 donation supports National Casa GAL and their work advocating for kids in foster care. That's this Giving Tuesday, November 29th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out MaximumFun.org slash events for more information and tickets to The Tarot Show with John Moe. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is writer Shea Serrano. I don't want our conversation to end without addressing... Um, a really important issue in your life and career. Um, Uh-oh. Something that, something that I myself think about a lot. Okay. And something that a lot of people have reached out to me about on the internet and suggested that I talk to you about. This is, this is our, a setup. Um, I feel like it's not going to be important at all, but go for it. It's the rapper J. Cole. <sighs> I knew it was him. I knew it was him. It was either him or Lamarcus Aldridge. The super one of those two guys. The superstar rapper, J. Cole. Yes. How do you feel about J. Cole? J. Cole is the greatest rapper of our generation. That's how I feel about it. (laughs) How do do you like that, Jesse? No, I. There are there are two parts of J. Cole for for me. There's J. Cole as a human who by all accounts, is a phenomenal person and just absolutely getting into heaven immediately. He seems like a very that nice he, man. He's like, he's like one of the first star rappers ever to be uh, proud of the fact that he went to college. Yeah, he's great. He seems like a lot of fun and just a sweet guy. And a buddy of mine has worked with him on, on this project or that project, and he tells tells me the same thing. Like in private, he is just as as sincere and thoughtful as he appears to be in public. So that um, that part, there's no arguing there. J. Cole is a is a great person, and I would never try to deny the way he makes other people feel. He gives people this very strong sense of self, which which I appreciate and respect. But as far as his music goes, Jesse, as far as his music goes, I'm gonna I'm gonna. I'm gonna leave that to you. I don't want to listen to those. I don't want to listen to those songs, Jesse. They're just not exciting. You know when you listen to a song and you, even if you don't know anything about it, you just feel it in your chest. And you're like, mm, I like I get where this guy's coming from, or I understand what this woman is singing about. Like I feel it. I don't. I never have ever gotten that feeling 
with J. Cole. He's like the human version of the last 30 minutes of a comedy movie where they try to get very serious and philosophical, but they're just saying a bunch of regular things. Like, that's what J. Cole's music feels like to me. I've I've used up all my time, but I'm very grateful. Uh, I, I'm very grateful that you came on the show. It was really nice to get to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. Shea Serrano. His book, Basketball and Other Things, is a ton of fun. Go check that out. His latest in the Other Things series is Hip Hop and Other Things, and it includes a lovely essay about Missy Elliott's Super Duper Fly. You probably need that in your life, right? That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fund in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I will say, basketball, not my favorite sport, but I do love the way they dribble up and down the court. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Thank you, Dan. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in all those places. Follow us. We will share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.